Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, a couple of weeks ago, we finished uh, our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And moving forward, uh, the long-term plan is for us to do a series through the Gospel of Luke that we will start during the Advent season this year, and that will take us probably through most, if not all, of next year. But between now and then, we still have several weeks to fill. And so as I was thinking about what we can do during this time, uh, an obvious choice came to mind. And so grab a Bible and turn to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament. Uh, and if you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 801. While you're finding your place, Malachi is an ideal book for us to study before we get into Luke for a couple of reasons. For one, uh, Malachi presents to us the very last prophetic message in the Old Testament period before Luke picks up with the very first prophetic message in the New Testament. And then secondly, Luke contains a direct fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, which we will see as we make our way through the book. Uh, so Malachi naturally leads into Luke, and it just so happens that we have enough time to go through it. Uh, just to give you a bit of context before we get started, uh, in addition to being the last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi is also the last book in the section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. Uh, the Minor Prophets include the books of Hosea through Malachi. Uh, they are distinguished from the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And, and that's so not because they are less important, but because they are shorter in length. So the minor prophets uh, are much shorter than the major prophets. Uh, now, the minor prophets are arranged chronologically. And so as I mentioned a moment ago, Malachi is the last prophetic message that the Lord sends to his people during the Old Testament period. And so you may remember that last year we went through the book of Nehemiah, and we saw the last events that took place during the Old Testament period as the, the Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city after exile. With Malachi, we're reading about the last thing that God says to his people during the Old Testament period. And it's possible that Malachi ministered shortly before Nehemiah. Uh, he may have been a contemporary of Nehemiah. He may have been slightly after Nehemiah. But there's no information in the book that allows us to have a specific date, so we can't be sure. And Malachi is also somewhat unique among the prophets in terms of the flow of the book. And so rather than just simply delivering the prophecies as they're given, like, like most prophets do, Malachi is actually structured as a series of arguments. And so the Lord begins by stating something about his people, which the people then argue or, or dispute. They challenge what God has said. And then this is followed by God's prophetic answer for the particular situation at hand. And so there's this back-and-forth dynamic between God and his people in the book that only Malachi has. But without further ado, we're going to get started with the prophecy of Malachi this morning as we are reminded of God's steadfast love for his people. And so we are in Malachi chapter 1, and we'll begin by reading verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
And so here at the beginning, we see that this book contains the oracle, the word of the Lord, to Israel by Malachi. And and right up front, there are three uh, details here that set the stage for the rest of the book. So first of all, the word that we translate as oracle uh, means burden or, or a heavy word. So in other words, what Malachi is going to say here is an urgent message that the people need to give their attention to so that they can respond appropriate to it, appropriately to it. Uh, secondly, we see this message is from the Lord to the people of Israel. And this is interesting uh, because uh, at this particular point in time, there is no Israel for this oracle to be directed to, at least not in the technical sense. Uh, hundreds of years earlier, Israel had split in two. So in 1 Kings chapter 12, a man named Jeroboam leads a a rebellion against the king, and he and the northern ten tribes of Israel break off and establish a separate kingdom, which left the the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin in a southern kingdom. The nation was divided. It was no longer one people. And then later, the northern kingdom, which took the name Israel, uh, was destroyed, and it was dissipated by the Assyrian army, and it it ended up uh, becoming the region known as Samaria. And so in more than one way, there is no official Israel for this prophecy to be directed to. And so the fact that it is addressed to Israel identifies the recipients as God's people, on the one hand, uh, but it may also be hinting and reminding the people of God's promise to eventually restore and reunite his people. And finally, we see that the message is being delivered to the people by the prophet Malachi. And unlike most of the other prophets, we really don't know anything else about Malachi. Uh, There's no information given about who he was or where he lived or or anything for that matter. Uh, Malachi is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And so all we know is that he was given this message at a critical time in Israel's history. Uh, But with all that in place, beginning in verse 2, Malachi delivers his first prophecy. So we'll pick up again in verse 2. He writes, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So as we pick up here in verse 2, the Lord begins this prophecy by proclaiming his love for his people. Malachi writes, I have loved you, says the Lord. Right? And the nuance of this, of this verb is a completed action in the past that continues to have ongoing significance and relevance to the present time. Right? So God is declaring his steadfast love for his people that was determined in the past and that continues forever. Right? But in, in, in the face of this, we see in the middle of verse 2 that the people dispute this claim. And they ask, how have you loved us? 
And so, uh, to be clear, each of these disputations in the book are not actual conversations that the Lord is having with the people. This is Malachi's summary, his, his addressing of the general attitude that the people have in regards to the particular topics. And so, while the Lord has loved his people, they are collectively not acknowledging his love for them. Now, on the one hand, we could understand uh, why the people might be feeling this way. If you remember the historical context from our study through uh, the book of Nehemiah, then you'll remember that things were not going very well right now. Uh, Despite the fact that the people had been brought home uh, to their rightful place in Jerusalem, uh, nothing was the same anymore. Uh, Even once Nehemiah rebuilt the city, Jerusalem was only a shell of what it had been before. Uh, The second temple was not nearly as glorious as the first temple had been. Uh, The people lived as subjects to the emperor of of Persia, the Persian Empire. Uh, What little the people did have was was constantly the target of attacks from neighboring nations. And perhaps worst of all, that the the promised Messiah, the king from the lineage of David, that the, the the former prophets had promised was coming, is nowhere in sight. And so we we can understand under the circumstances why the people might feel uh, or question whether God really loved them. If if God loves us, then why are things the way they are right now? Of course, this ignores the fact that the people are where they are as a result of their persistent sin and rebellion against the Lord. But maybe this isn't exactly the right time to have that conversation. The point is that at this moment, the people aren't feeling God's love for them. So at the end of verse 2 through verse 3, God responds to the people with his first prophecy. And he begins by pointing them back to his choosing of them to be his people. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now the, the terms love and hate in this particular context don't carry the emotional baggage that we often associate with them, like when we say that I love something or I hate something. Uh, As we've said many times before, love is primarily a commitment to the well-being of another person. And so as the Lord is speaking here, he is referring to his commitment to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, which is a commitment he did not share with any other people group. So of course we know that God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his covenant people, He promised to make Abraham into a great nation, a nation that through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He promised Abraham that he would bless those who blessed him and that anyone who dishonored him would be cursed by the Lord. But then in Genesis chapter 28, we come to a fork in the road, and that's because Isaac and Rebekah have twins. There are two sons, and while Esau is the older of the two sons, God actually chooses to establish his covenant with Jacob and his descendants. The Lord committed himself to Jacob rather than to Esau. And then over time, Jacob's descendants become the nation of Israel. Esau's descendants become the nation of Edom. And throughout the Old Testament, there's a a constant tension between the two nations. It's like we're family, but we really don't get along very well. And I'm sure maybe you understand how that goes. Uh, Just because we're family doesn't mean that we get along. And so the two nations are frequently fighting with each other, but but neither side ever does, you know, just particularly great damage to the other side. Well, fast forward to the time of the exile. As the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem 
killing, raping, torturing everyone they find, the Edomites take advantage of the situation. The, the Edomites celebrate the destruction of Jerusalem, and they, they go in and they, they steal and they pillage everything that they can find. They poured salt into the wound in ways that were outrageous and shameful. And so in the book of Obadiah, the, the prophet Obadiah, the Lord promises to execute a full and final judgment against the Edomites for how they treated his people. And Malachi is picking up on that curse here. We see that the Lord promises to completely destroy their land, essentially turning it into a ghost town. And not only that, but we see that this is a permanent judgment. The Lord says that if the people decide they're going to try and rebuild, he's just going to tear it back down again. Uh, Edom has chosen the wrong side, and so these enemies of his people are going to be dealt with. Now, you'll notice uh, in, in the, the context that Malachi portrays this as if it has already happened. Right? The Lord says, I have laid waste his hill country, and I left his heritage to jackals. This is what we call the, the prophetic past tense. Right? When God determines to do something in the future— but because his promises are certain, he speaks of it as if it's already happened. And so this is confirmed uh, as, as we read the end of the passage when the, when the Lord says that this is something that the people will see. Right? This is something that hasn't happened yet. But Malachi ends this first prophecy by declaring that when the people do see it, they will respond by glorifying the Lord and by acknowledging his greatness beyond the borders of Israel. See, they, they recognize that God is not just the God over the geographical area of Israel, which was a, a common idea in the ancient world, that gods had territories that they were strong in and then others where they were weak. No, the Lord is the one true God, not simply over Israel, but over the entire earth. He has authority over all nations. And when the Lord avenges his people against the Edomites, they will know that he has loved them. And so in this first passage this morning, Malachi reminds God's people of his love for them, even as they await a, a future time when he will destroy their enemies. While right now they are suffering and the Edomites may appear to be flourishing, the Lord assures them of the fact that they are the people that he has chosen, that he has committed himself to, and that eventually he is going to make things right on their behalf. And this is a really, really helpful way to start this prophecy off, and that's, that's the case for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important that God starts this prophecy off with an assurance of his love, because that sets the stage for everything else that is going to come later. You see, the reality is that God has some things to say to his people. That there are some problems with them individually and corporately that he's going to address, and he's going to speak to them very directly about these problems. But before he does that, he reminds the people of his love for them and places the coming correction in a context of commitment. And so in the same way that our children need to know that we love them, if our discipline is going to be effective, in the same way that a, a brother or sister in Christ needs to know that we love them before we engage in a difficult conversation with them. So the Lord begins this prophecy by assuring the people of his commitment to them 
into their ultimate well-being, which should then provide a framework for them to receive everything else he's going to say as the prophecy continues. And so we're going to see throughout the rest of this book that God is after our hearts. Okay, God, God is not pleased with half-hearted worship. He's not pleased with us going through the motions of our, of our devotion to him uh, without it really coming from the heart. He wants his people to have a genuine love for him that results in authentic faithfulness, but that begins with his love for us. Secondly, it's important that the Lord begins this prophecy with an affirmation of his love, because if the people are going to persevere, then they must be convinced of the fact that God loves them. Now, we, we talked about this recently as we went through Philippians, right? One of the reasons that Paul could persevere in his life and ministry, despite the difficulties that he faced, was because he was convinced that God loved him, and that he could not measure God's love for him based on his circumstances. And this is important for Israel to understand, because at this point in history, again, as we've said, the, the deck is stacked against them. Right? From, a, from a physical standpoint, there are a lot of reasons that they might question God's love for them. And there really aren't that many reasons for them to believe it. Right? But the Lord assures them, he points them back to his irrevocable choice of them centuries before. And he also points them forward to the day when he will make things right on their behalf. And church, this is super important for us to see this morning, uh, because in the very same way, we often find ourselves in a similar situation. Now, I trust that given the circumstances over the past year and a half, I don't have to convince you that there are times in our life when we might question God's love for us. And based on what's happening around us, what's happening to us, it can be tempting to question God's love. If God loves me, then why is this happening? Or why is this not happening? If God loves me, then why do I feel this way? Why is the world the way it is? There are so many different kinds of questions that we could ask that, that give expression to this, this temptation. And certainly, like Israel, our, our enemies may include people, and particularly in times and places where there is persecution for our faith. But more commonly, more often for us, our enemies include sickness and disease, and, and financial difficulty, and relational brokenness, plans that, that fall through, natural disasters, suffering injustice, right, the, the, the effects of war, the reality of death. Right? These are the things that come against us in life that cause us to question what God is doing in our lives. Does God really love us? But just as Malachi pointed God's people in the Old Testament backwards and forwards to be reminded of God's love, the scriptures also tell us to look backward and forward to be reassured of God's steadfast love for us. And so first of all, we need to look backward, way back, actually, before even time existed. Right? Paul writes in chapter 1 of his letter to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the same way that God chose Israel, 
to be his people in the old covenant. So he has chosen us to be his people under the new covenant. We are secure in God's love because just as Malachi says in verse 2, the Lord has loved us with a love that started way back before we were on the scene and that will continue forever. And while we're looking backwards, we certainly need to look back and see this love expressed for us at the cross where Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God and brought into the community of God's people by placing our faith in him for salvation. As we said through the, towards the end of Philippians, the cross is the full and final proof of God's love for his people. When nothing else in this life makes sense, we can look to the cross and we can know that God is for us and not against us. So we need to look backward, but we also need to look forward because just as Malachi promised the Israelites, the Lord has promised to us that one day he is coming back to make all things right again. On that day, the Lord will destroy our enemies in the same way that he promised to do for ancient Israel. And he makes a new heaven and a new earth for us to dwell in with him for eternity. And looking forward to this in Revelation chapter 15, John sees the multitude of people who overcome the great beast in the book of Revelation, and they worship the Lord together by singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. One day, all of our enemies will be destroyed as God makes all things new. And on that day, we will rejoice and say, great is the Lord, not just in Israel, but over all nations, over all the earth. And so church, be encouraged this morning. As we begin Malachi's prophecy, we see that despite how things may look right now, we can know that God loves us, even as we look forward to the coming day, and there is coming a day when he will make all things right again. Let's pray together.